Okay. Hey, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Dimension Fold, the YouTube and podcast. And uh, tonight we are very uh, lucky to, and thrilled and privileged to have with us uh, Bill Kuselas. Uh, I think I said that right. Pretty hey, close, close enough. Closer than most. Okay. And um, uh, we uh, we are going to talk to Bill today about um, a book that uh, he and his wife co-wrote together that is called... Bridging the Tragedy, Silver Linings in the Mysterious Ohio River Valley. And um, I, I know a little bit about what it's about, but I my background with, well, okay, so I guess the, I guess the, the spoiler is it's about Mothman somehow and, um, and, and also some kind of bridge. So that's kind of all I know. And so maybe we'll, uh, we'll leave it to Bill to tell us um, what the what the event that inspired this book is and and then go from there sure hey ken thanks for the opportunity i really appreciate being able to be here tonight again my regrets that jackie couldn't join us i know she was really excited sometimes things don't work out like we'd like them to yeah that's very true yeah um, but there's usually a silver lining that's what we try to focus on don't we <laughs> yeah 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 so where would you like me to start? How would you like to begin? Okay, so I guess um, there's, so you're talking about silver linings. What is the, uh, what's the thing that has the silver linings on it in this case? Sure. So the title of the book, again, is Bridging the Tragedy. And the tragedy is the Silver Bridge Collapse of 1967 that occurred in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. The subtitle is Silver Linings in the Mysterious Ohio River Valley. It's a little bit of a play on words because it's the Silver Bridge. But uh -huh. um, the flip side to all this is the reason we called it the Mysterious Ohio River Valley is that the Silver Bridge disaster is historically intertwined with the Mothman phenomena of 66 and 67 in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. The two events overlapped one another, and they're often historically tied together because of that reason. Okay, so so give us a quick rundown on the actual bridge collapse itself. Sure, so the bridge collapse, um, the Silver Bridge was actually constructed in 1928 and it spanned the Ohio River from, from uh, Conagua, Ohio, over to Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And it was an I-bar constructed bridge, which means it was one of the very first ones in the world to have this special suspension type combination suspension and uh, like bolt type construction of a bridge. And it was an engineering marvel in its day. Unfortunately, when it was built, it also had a design flaw in one of the beams that constructed the bridge. It took 39 years for that to manifest and to cause the harm that it did. But when the bridge did collapse on December 15th of 1967, unfortunately it was jam packed with Christmas shoppers and commuters and people from the area and over the road truckers. And when the bridge collapsed, 46 people lost their lives. Wow. And it's in a small community, I assume. Point Pleasant slash Gallipolis, Ohio is a, an area that maybe has 7,000 people max. So yeah. 46 people out of a 7,000 person community, the way it's been described to me is that if you didn't know somebody who died on the bridge, you knew somebody who knew somebody who yeah. died on the bridge. I mean, everybody in that little interconnected community was really affected by this. Yeah, that's going to hit pretty hard. It did. 
So, so, uh, so basically, um, the the bridge collapsed due to uh, engineering failure, um, mechanical issues, whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, and you know, a lot. It, it really kind of devastated the town. Um, so there, but there was weird stuff happening before and after that. There was a ton of weirdness that happened in the 13 months prior to the bridge collapse. So in November of 1966, there were three grave diggers in a small suburb of Charleston, West Virginia, which is about 50 miles away from Point Pleasant, who were out in a cemetery doing their business. And they looked up and they spotted a brown flying humanoid type figure, which scared them half to death. I mean, at that time... That wasn't the kind of thing you'd see on a regular basis, really, if ever. And they were very scared by this. Within a few days, there were a couple of married couples from Point Pleasant who were driving around just north of Point Pleasant in a forest preserve <clears throat> that was known as the TNT area. It still is known as the TNT area, just 11 miles north of Point Pleasant. It's called the TNT area because they used to house munitions, literally TNT, in a series of 100 concrete igloos in this area for the World War II effort. It was decommissioned after we bombed Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and then it kind of overgrew. So there's foliage all over the top of most of these igloos, but the area was known as like a lover's lane. So kids would go back there and they'd park. And then these two married couples were out there doing what they like to do on the weekends they were chasing Parkers. So they were just moving <laughs> around, you know, trying to trying to interrupt these romantic interludes that other folks were having. In the process of doing this, one of them spotted a black winged being with piercing red eyes, which again, just like the grave diggers, it scared them half to death. They got into the car and they hightailed it down Route 62 all the way back to Point Pleasant, about an 11 mile drive. It's very windy and twisty and turny that road and they were allegedly hitting speeds of up to 100 miles per hour while this thing was pursuing them flying and actually hitting the roof of the car and this was oh. a 57 chevy this guy was driving and it was immaculate <laughs> so as this is going on mind you um i've been up and down route 62 a number of times it's not the kind of thing you like to do 50 miles an hour on in the broad daylight because it's just one of those not necessarily hairpin turns but you've got to really know the area to not be looking for trouble as you're driving it. Yeah. It goes right along the Ohio. I mean, you don't want to end up in the Ohio or get yeah. a collision. Yeah. We've so got a road just like that in our area. And I, yeah, you get some of the road signs, some of the speed limits are like, you know, down to 30 for a couple of, mm -hmm. of these corners. Um, but man, that must be super intense when something's like knocking on your roof and uh, like they, they could probably catch glimpses in the mirror and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine how freaked out they must have been? No, I can't. No, what ended up happening was they drove all the way to the police station, ran into the police station and filed reports about what happened. And the police, understandably so, thought maybe they were a little nutty or maybe drinking too much or smoking too much. But they isolated each one of the kids into their own room and not one of them varied from the story. So it wasn't a matter of they were concocting this thing. They yeah. were horrified. And the officer, a guy by the name of uh, Millard Halstead, 
basically went on record to say, hey, you know what? I've known these kids their entire lives, and they're not the kind of kids to make something like this up. They were legitimately scared. What did they see? We don't know. But they saw something that scared them, and we're going to kind of, you know, we're going to take their word for it. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's kind of the key for a lot of um, like phenomena that we that we can't explain is that we can't explain it. And so I think to um, when I when my I try to always take a, a reaction of I don't know I don't know what you're talking about I don't know like I'm not going to assume it's anything necessarily and uh, just kind of listen to the evidence. Um, but it's tough when it's circum like you know it's somebody's word like what I it's weird because when when people start saying things that are unbelievable, well you want to believe them, but it's unbelievable. <laughs> like, sure. How do you deal with that? Right. Um, well, interestingly enough, this was only the first reported sighting in Point Pleasant proper. The very next night in the very area where these kids were at, the TNT area, there was a lady by the name of Marcella Bennett, and she and her small daughter, two or three years old, went to go visit some relatives in the TNT area that had a home there. And sure enough, they encountered the creature as well. I mean, it scared this lady so badly that she dropped her daughter and collapsed on top of her daughter. And she believed she was suffocating her, but there was nothing she could do. She was that scared. The little girl was never hurt. I mean, she was her pride was wounded more than anything else. So there was no harm done. And Marcella wasn't physically harmed either, but that was the second reporting uh, reportage of uh, a Mothman encounter. But there were literally between 100 and 200 reported sightings over the next 13 months. So that was going on. UFO sightings were happening. Cattle mutilations were reported. Men in black, you name it, UFO activity. The paranormal activity was off the charts for those 13 months. Wow. And was it all uh, like was the was the TNT area sort of a hotspot or was it was it distributed more uh, around the different neighborhoods or? It was distributed throughout the entire area. There were sightings not only in Point Pleasant, but also on the other side of the river in Gallipolis, Ohio, which is literally right across the river from Point Pleasant. And then some of the surrounding smaller communities as well. But the TNT area was the primary haunt for Mothman. And it's where a lot of the UFO sightings were happening as well, although they were also within the greater region. Okay. Uh, weird. So I don't know, what, where do you want to go next with this? Well, I mean, basically the, the activity that was going on is all chronicled within John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies. Mm. And he goes in depth with all kinds of different things. There were also disembodied voices. He was receiving prophecies of people who were prominent political figures who were going to be assassinated. Martin Luther King was one of the prophecies he got. He tried to contact King's people. He tried to he tried to save them, save him, but he wasn't able to get through. Bobby Kennedy, he received messages that Bobby Kennedy was going to be assassinated. He couldn't stop that either. Um, all oh, kinds sorry. of different crazy things. Uh, was John Keel in the area at the time? So John Keel was a reporter from New York City, and he had been traveling in the South reporting on some different paranormal phenomena. He kind of stumbled across Point Pleasant when he heard that there were some sightings that were going on, but he ended up spending you know, the better part of the next year 
there in Point Pleasant. He was a visitor. Oh. He stayed in people's homes, but he was from New York City. Okay. So it was a little bit of a Fox Mulder kind of a situation. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a little bit of the inspiration for Fox yeah. Mulder, sure. Yeah, maybe. Um, so so then he uh so he was um basically interviewing eyewitnesses. Uh did he did he have an, any encounters himself? Not of Mothman. He never did, but he did have one encounter with a light in the sky or a flying saucer or UFO. Uh -huh. He and a local reporter by the name of Mary Heyer kind of teamed up and joined forces and went out and they reported on these things and they interviewed people. And they were out in the TNT area one night. And as they were out, they were looking primarily for UFOs and they spotted some lights in the sky. And as they spotted these lights, they John had like an industrial strength flashlight and he started flashing Morse code up towards these lights and he spelled out the word descend. And sure enough, that light, that entity, whatever it was, began the falling leaf motion like it was walking down a staircase uh, after he crazy. asked it to descend. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's pretty wild. And then, and then so he wrote a book about all this stuff. And uh, well, I think he wrote several books, didn't he? And John Keel was primarily a ufologist at heart. His first published book was uh, called Jadu. And that was, he was an adventurer his entire life. He was in the army. And when he, when he left the army, he went to the Middle East and also to India and kind of traveled. And he was, what he was doing is he wanted to interview the magicians of the Orient, basically. So his first book was called Jadu. That was, I think, published in 1957. Now, in 1970, he published Operation Trojan Horse, and that was about primarily uh, UFOs and things of that nature. And that was where he first postulated his theory that they weren't necessarily nuts and bolts crafts, but that they were interdimensional presences or what he okay. called transmogrifications of energy. Right. Okay. So, so basically... I mean, yeah, and I, I know a little bit about that theory, not not a lot, but I mean, it kind of makes sense in some ways because, um, you know, you you hear of of things like um, shape shifting or or other kind of really strange things like just disappearing and stuff like that. Where whereas if you're if it's not a purely physical device or being, then that kind of makes sense when they're like. Um, you know they're they're phasing in and out or like mm -hmm. they're, they're from a different place or yeah that that's interesting um is there any other uh are are any of the point pleasant encounters indicative of that sort of behavior uh in terms of like phasing in and out of reality <clears throat> or yeah anything that would that would kind of lead you to to uh to lean towards the non-physical nature there, I think so. You know, not necessarily about the UFOs. You know, besides the lights in the skies and the the instance that I just shared with you. Besides that, he doesn't go a whole too far in depth about the flying saucers, even though UFO activity was just as prominent, if not more so, than the Mothman sightings were. One of the other things he talked about is that there seemed to be a series of what he called bedroom invaders, and these were like individuals or entities that would show up in plaid clothing in people's bedroom and wake them up. They never physically harmed them, but they scared them half to death. People would wake up and see this presence at the foot of the bed, and then it would just disappear. 
So that was another thing that was going on during that time, as was poltergeist activity. Okay. Interesting. So, so John Keel wrote about most of that stuff, and is is most of your um, is most of your uh, I guess information coming from his material, or have you collected from other sources as well? Well, we used uh, John Keel's Mothman Prophecies and Gray Barker's The Silver Bridge, which is mm. another book that was published on the topic. Gray Barker being another investigator, a contemporary somewhat of a peer of John Keel's. They both did some investigations together, but that's just a minor sliver of what we did for our work. Um, the way that we set this book up was almost in terms of like a doctoral dissertation. It's mm -hmm. set up uh, with all the different chapters that one would find in a dissertation, but it's interspersed with interviews with 11 different participants. And these are people who either directly encountered some of the paranormal phenomena that we're speaking of, or they directly were impacted by the collapse of the Silver Bridge. Not, not meaning it fell on them or that they were on the bridge, but one mm -hmm. individual in particular lost both his mom and dad in the Silver Bridge disaster. And another one lost her sister-in-law in the Silver Bridge disaster. But what we did is we, we applied psychological theory. Um, and we, what we did is we sought to determine what were the elements of growth that the community members were able to experience as a result of going through the paranormal phenomena and the silver bridge collapse. We wanted to focus again, going back to the subtitle on the silver linings of the disaster. So to answer your question, um, the Mothman prophecies is alluded to in what we call our literature review. We talk about that briefly, but mm -hmm. the bulk of the book is really the interviews and then the analysis of the things that were said to us to develop the theory and the positive results that came from those experiences. Okay, so it's really more of a trauma-informed uh, phenomenological study. Very close to that. As a matter of fact, the name of our group is Phenomenology Research Professionals. So we're using we're using qualitative methodology. It's not stats-oriented. So right. that makes my heart happy because I'm not a stats guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, it kind of plays into our wheelhouse, and that's just building relationships with people and doing interviews and then analyzing those interviews compared to what the others have said to arrive at general statements of how people have not only transcended the challenges that they had with the bridge disaster and the paranormal phenomena, but really have excelled and developed personally and from a community standpoint as a result of going through those things. Right. So so that's a really important thing that I think we need to come back to in a minute. Uh, but first of all, um, I just want to kind of point out that like you're in a bit of a unique position um, because of your uh, your educational background. So um, would you care to comment a little bit on that? Like in terms of how that, um, uh, like you're, you have a doctorate um, and how that informs your, your practice and your approach to this, this kind of field that is frankly, a lot of times populated by people who with let's let's say maybe less credibility well thank you for that i appreciate that um i i would say first and foremost i am absolutely a paranormal enthusiast and mm -hmm. certainly when it comes to mothman i've i've been studying mothman really how would you say this um ferociously for the last 20 years uh, in fact one of the guys that we interviewed for our our study is a mothman author who's published 
more work on Mothman than really anybody else on the face of the planet today. I can say that with confidence. Um, but I, the way that we've approached this work Sorry, what's really... His, who, who is that guy? Uh, his name is Andy Colvin. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with that name. Uh, no, but maybe I'll look it up and I'll put some links here on the on the video. That would be really helpful. He's a good friend of ours and he's an excellent researcher. Um, Andy has really repopularized John Keel's Lost Magazine articles, and he's put them into 15 different volumes and published those under the new Saucerian Press uh, publishing okay, business cool. unit. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's been a great resource for us. But to answer the question, I mean, really, I think what sets our work apart is that we really set our preconceived notions aside. And we're applying, a, we're applying a technique known as bracketing, which means we're suspending belief. We're suspending our ideas. This book is not about us. I mean, we're fascinated by Mothman. We're in love with the community of Point Pleasant because of we've been visiting it for six years on a regular basis. We've been there a dozen times. But what we wanted to really do is focus on the experience of the individuals who we interviewed. And we have a, we have a, a set of guiding questions. There are two different sets. One of them is, uh, tell us about, you know, the Silver Bridge collapse and how it how it really has affected you. And then we have a you know, sub-series of different questions for that. For the people who wanted to talk about the paranormal phenomena, we used the same set of questions, but we interspersed the word Mothman for Silver Bridge collapse or, you know, paranormal phenomena. So right. we really looked at it kind of dialectically and drilled down into what they had to say. And we used the same set of questions for each one of the individuals. Um, from that point forward, once we were able to get everything basically transcribed, we were able to upload all the transcriptions into a software that's called Atlas TI. It's a qualitative software. What it does is it keeps all those transcripts organized in the same place. Mm -hmm. And then we went through and used a process known as coding. And what coding does is, let's say that you made a statement to me and you said, Bill, I was at the Silver Bridge Collapse. And I was devastated because I lost my mom. Mm -hmm. So what I would do is I would take that statement and I would extract a meaning unit from that. Devastated, lost his mom. We did that with every single line of all 11 interviews. We ended up with what we call 2,240 initial codes. So those are 2,240 meaning units. From that point, we sort them into different categories because each one of them kind of filters into a general category. I want to say we went from 2,240 general meaning units down to 110 different categories. From that point, we focused it down to 15, what we call dimensions of post-traumatic growth as mm -hmm. a result of going through the bridge disaster and the paranormal <clears throat> phenomena. So I think what sets that apart is we've got, we've got a device or a series of devices and a process to follow to extract that meaning and to right. really breathe life into the study. Right. So, so you must have been looking for correlations then between those two uh, data sets. Were well, you comparing? Were you comparing like A to A, like exactly like if you if you asked the same question uh, and then inserted Bridge and then inserted Mothman, are you comparing those two answers from that one person to see if they like if they use the same language, same syntax, that kind of stuff? Not, not necessarily. In fact, what we did is once we asked the questions, we threw it all into one massive data set and then divided it out. Because again, the goal was to find the meaning units and what the individuals ascribed 
we're looking for post-traumatic growth. So whether it's post-traumatic growth that comes from the bridge disaster, or if it comes from experiencing the paranormal, it's still post-traumatic growth. So the goal was to be able to discern that. What I can tell you is that with the two people, Andy Colvin being one, and then Harriet Plumbrook being the other, who were primarily focused on the paranormal experiences, the neat thing about what they went through is that rather than being devastated and having to come up from the ground up, they were young people that experienced the paranormal. And it's like they were gifted or blessed with things that they were able to do once they experienced this that other people couldn't do, such as Harriet today has total recall, meaning she she read our book in a day, which wow. I wouldn't be able to do that. <laughs> which, and, and she could probably spit the thing back to me nearly verbatim. You know, now that she's in her 60s, she was able to do this when she was a kid, not necessarily read our book, but any topic that was presented to her, she would be able to spend a half an hour with it and then get up in front of the class and tell you exactly what she just read. She also earned her living for a time as a medical intuitive, meaning she could she could diagnose people's conditions just by having conversations with them. That extended to a Zoom conversation that she had with me. In fact, yeah. she the first time we met, she said, you've got some physical challenges, don't you? And, you know, I, I'm in pretty good shape for my age, but I have some neck trouble and I have some lower back trouble. And I thought that's what she was talking about. She said, no, I'm getting something more like diverticulitis. Well, I'd been diagnosed with that a couple of years ago, but it was a false diagnosis. Four days later, the ambulance came to pick me up, took me to the nearby hospital, and I was in the ER for 13 hours with digestive tract issues. So, no I mean, way. just crazy, crazy gifts that she has. And then Andy is actually the most, in Amazon's words, he is the most voluminous publisher in Amazon history by units, well over a thousand books. Wow. That's insane. So, so and so and like both of these guys got these powers, I guess let's say, um, at, like at that time, like before that, they were just normal. They didn't have these kinds of uh, kind of um, really quite baffling skills. That's what they've shared with us. In fact, Andy is more inclined towards the arts, and he told us during our interview that in class, and mind you, he's a six, seven, eight-year-old kid he was able to draw all day long in class and the teachers didn't give him a hard time because he could also listen to the subject material and then ace it when it came time to do the tests. So he was multitasking, thinking and working dialectically at a super young age. The two of them, along with a bunch of other kids who had been exposed also to some of this phenomena were placed into a group of what they call genius kids there in North Charleston and um, they were isolated and examined as they grew through life. Hmm. Wow. This is this is getting weirder and weirder. It's starting to look like a TV series. Yeah. Um, you know, what's, what's funny is that in our book, Andy attributes a lot of his life experiences to certain X-Files episodes and some of the arcs that go through there. He, yeah. um, you'll have to see it in the book, but it's, it's there. It's there. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh okay um i don't even know what to ask you next um i guess really um like a lot of people have have done a lot of work on um just exploring or telling telling about the narratives about you know these strange paranormal uh events and whatnot 
And you guys are doing something very different with it, even though you're using um, a, a similar or a lot of the same kind of material. Um, so I guess, would you say that the book is about that, the, these activities, or is it about something else? And if something else, what is that something? It's primarily about something else. What we just discussed with Andy and Harriet is the minority portion of the study. The mm -hmm. maximum part of the book is really devoted to the nine other participants who gave interviews, but they talked more about the community of Point Pleasant and their personal experience with the bridge collapse. A handful of them did talk about Mothman, not that they had experienced it directly, but they remembered the excitement and the fear in the community. They remembered piling into the car. Some of them were teenagers going up to the TNT area looking for Mothman, mm -hmm. but they were primarily focused upon what had happened in the bridge disaster and how it affected them and the community. So it's, I call the book really more of a paranormal related book than mm -hmm. a true paranormal study, because we really focused again on the concept of the post-traumatic growth and the good things that have come from the bridge disaster and from the paranormal phenomena that was experienced. So it's really more of a study. Um, and again, it, it's to illuminate those silver linings. A lot of it was designed Really, um, the study came together as a result of our very first trip to Point Pleasant. And I'd be happy to elaborate on that if you'd like me to. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Sure. So back in 2016, at the time, uh, my wife, Jackie, who was supposed to be with us tonight, but isn't because of an illness, she was working as a United States postmaster. And I was working my day job in technology sales and then working also on the doctorate in psychology. I had recently begun the doctorate. And by that point, we were so busy with our own personal lives that we didn't have a lot of time to get together and to do the fun things that we were used to doing, like taking somewhat exotic uh, vacations like to Arizona or to Mexico or what have you. Uh, we, had, we had recently, within the last couple of years, we had taken guardianship of our granddaughter, who was at the time 10 years old. So we became parents after being empty nesters. But she approached me and said, you know what? We're not spending any time together. We need to go on vacation. She said, where do you want to go? So by then I'm a decade plus into researching Mothman on my own. And I said, oh, let's, go to Point, let's go to Point Pleasant. So she said, ah, okay, yeah, that sounds interesting. Let's throw in the Serpent Mound. Let's go check that out in Southern Ohio. And then we'll go up to Point Pleasant and spend a few days there. And then we'll end up in Pittsburgh and check out a Cubs and Pirates baseball game because we yes. used to love to do that. So we went to Serpent Mound and then we drove to Point Pleasant. And again, I've been studying now at this point in 2016, I was exposed to the movie in 03. So for 13 years, I've been immersing myself in everything Mothman related and everything Point, Point Pleasant. So when I got there, of course, the sky was perfectly clear. It was beautiful. We had the backdrop. You can see the mountains in the background. And we pulled into town over the Silver Memorial Bridge. And then you've got to kind of do a, a spin and go across the Kanawha River also, because that's where the two rivers meet right there, the Kanawha and the Ohio. So two bridges. And then you pulled into Point Pleasant. We got there right after five o'clock. So the museum was closed. It's a small town. Everything was shut down. But there was a little restaurant right around, the, right next door, basically, to the Mothman Museum. And Jackie was looking in to the restaurant. And I was trying to figure out what to do with myself because everything was closed except for the restaurant. And she said, there's a little lady in there that I think wants to talk to us. And I said, okay, well, I trust my wife's gut when she tells me things. Yeah. So we walked into the restaurant and sure enough, this little, she was a little old lady. She was a sweet, 
a 74-year-old lady by the name of Carolyn Harris. And Carolyn Harris was the co-founder of the Mothman Festival, and she ran her little business that she called the Mothman Diner, aka Harris's Steakhouse. It wasn't really a steakhouse. It was more of a greasy spoon kind of place, but it had really cute old world charm, and she was just a tremendous host. So we sat down and started visiting with her. Nobody else was in the restaurant except for her and a gentleman by the name of Mark Griffith, who we became friends with immediately also. And Carolyn went on to tell us her story for a little while. And about half an hour into the conversation, I said, you look familiar to me. Do I know you for maybe a documentary or two? And she said, yeah, I've been in about 16 of them. I said, really? Huh. And she said, yeah, I, I lost my two-year-old son in the bridge collapse. You know, and then your heart just goes out to the lady. And she said, you know, my first husband and my son were on the bridge when it went down. I lost him. She said, I don't discuss that. I'll talk to you about anything Mothman related, anything UFO related, but that's just not something I talk about. So we honored that. We respected that. We went back to her restaurant every single day we were in Point Pleasant because it, it I couldn't describe the way that it was making me feel, but it made me feel like I was at home. She made me feel like I had met a long lost, long lost relative. So after we left there and we drove up to Pittsburgh, I was no longer interested in the baseball game because I just <laughs> loved this town. We had so much fun and such a good time. We were so welcomed in Point Pleasant. Everybody was super kind to us. So we went home and back to our workaday world and back to being you know, surrogate parents to our granddaughter and our respective careers and my studies. But by the end of that next semester, we were headed out to my mother-in-law's for Christmas dinner. And I told Jackie, I said, you know, Carolyn gave us her phone numbers. We need to use that number. I want to give her a call and I want to ask her if I can write her story. And I knew she didn't want to talk about the bridge disaster, but I wanted to at least see if she'd be interested in telling me something about her life because we just love this lady. So Jackie said, that sounds great. Let's get a hold of her after the first of the year. So that was Christmas Eve. Christmas Day, our friend Mark Griffith, who we met with Carolyn, contacted us online, said, guys, Carolyn had a heart attack. Next, she went to the hospital and the next day Carolyn died so we never got a chance to see her again we never got a chance to talk to her again we were devastated both of us were just crushed because she, this was a lady we knew for less than a week but it seemed like a lifetime she felt like a relative and I couldn't quite wrap my head around it so fast forward to my next residency that I needed to do like nine months later it was in Arlington Virginia and right along that path we drove it. We're road warrior types. We don't we don't fly much. Is Point Pleasant, West Virginia. So I got a hold of the guy that runs the Mothman Museum, a gentleman by the name of Mo Jeff Wamsley, who we met on the first trip. And I just figured, you know what? Let's see if he wants to get together for dinner because he and I are into the same music. We're both kind yeah. of metalheads, oh, so yeah. we'd have stuff we'd have stuff to talk about, right? So yeah. he's like, yeah, come on down. And I was I, at first, I'm kind of like a fanboy, you know, because he's just a cool <laughs> dude. He's like a rock star. And then we just turned out, we just clicked. We have met with him every single year. Every time we go out there, we, we sit down and have dinner with Jeff. Now he's just an awesome guy. But we dedicated our book to the memory of Carolyn Harris and the people of Point Pleasant. And what I finally was able to kind of wrap my head around was that she reminded me of the great grandmother who raised me. My parents were divorced when I was six. Mom was a single mom. So she was the breadwinner. My great grandma took care of us. She was 80 when I was a baby. And she raised me till I was 17 years old. She lived to 97 years old. Wow. So that was the that was the that was the connection that I felt. So yeah, I turned my doctoral practice into a book about 
Carolyn Point Pleasant and the legend of Mothman and how it affected the community. That's really cool. So it's actually your dissertation. Well, my dissertation was also about post-traumatic growth, but okay. it was about the post-traumatic growth that a man can experience by going through the divorce process because I experienced the divorce early in life, earlier in life. And it was a very challenging, you know, experience for anybody who's been through that. It can be super simple and, and a relief when you're done. For me, it was a relief, but it wasn't super simple. And it was mostly because of the process of divorce. It was the back and forth with the attorneys. So I had a lot of the research already gathered for post-traumatic growth. What I didn't have was the interviews of the people in Point Pleasant and in Charleston to talk to about the subject material for the book. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, it's nice when you can kind of turn one project into two projects with, without doing yeah. two, two projects worth of work. <laughs> yep, exactly. It, it helped us. It helped us to knock out at least half of one of the chapters, but everything else was was fresh material. Okay. Um, so okay, so let's let's talk about the growth. Like, what what were the results of the investigation? Um, like, and how did you? I guess how do you uh, how do you coordinate that and boil all that down into something uh, measurable? I know it's I know it's quantitative or I know it's qualitative. Uh, but it still has to be measurable in some way, right? Yes. Uh, I can tell you it took months. But having recently been through that process with the dissertation just a year and a half before that, still had the software, still had the methodology in my head. I knew how to do it. So I understood the practice. So it really was a matter of what I was describing earlier of extracting a meaning unit from every single line that every person made throughout every one of their interviews, extracting that coming up with commonalities, generalities, not always the most frequently occurring things ended up being a result of the study, but the ones that were the most riveting and that related back to the research questions the best, those are the ones that we ended up selecting. So it was really a filtering process. You know, if you think of like a sieve or like a, what do they call that? Like a strainer when you're straining things out like spaghetti, you're trying to get the water out. Well, this time the water really is the product. The rest of the stuff is more ancillary and was part of what they said, but it wasn't really pertinent to the actual research questions. So right. by the time we answered the research questions, we came up with 15 different dimensions of post-traumatic growth. And I'd be happy to tell you what those are if you'd like. Yeah, yeah. So I've got to open up the book because I don't have these memorized. Okay. But on page 271 of the book, we've got the 15 dimensions of post-traumatic growth. And they are appreciation for life, sense of community, entrepreneurialism, family, gratitude, memorial, optimism, patience, perseverance, personal development, perspective taking, positive reflections, preparedness, responsibility, and spiritual development. Interesting. So so these are all the outcomes that, like, essentially, what did, were these people telling you these things explicitly, or are, or some of them are more subconscious, and you were able to tease them out? Most of their statements were relatively straightforward, and it wasn't very challenging to pull the meaning units out, the initial meaning units, you know, as we kind of pulled that data out and put it into those categories that are called focused codes, 
that required a matter of taking each one of those initial statements and placing them into a place alongside other ones that filled in that category, so to speak. The next step, which is the theoretical coding, which got us from the 110 down to the 15, is kind of a similar thing, but you also reflect, reflect back to other psychological theories. And then you kind of meld those psychological theories with the stuff that's in those focus codes to get those theoretical codes, which ultimately become the dimensions of post-traumatic growth, if that makes sense. Yeah, which, which psychological theories were you tending to use? So what we used here for the, and that's the first time that I've been interviewed that somebody's actually <laughs> asked that. I appreciate that question. So self-determination theory is one of the ones, because I mean, if, if somebody's gonna grow, they have to have the desire to grow. Growth in and of itself doesn't typically happen without some type of sustained effort to be able to get there. So self-determination theory was one of them. The methodology that we used is called social constructivism. And it's basically what social constructivism is, is a matter of like you and I are talking right now, we're co-creating our sense of reality for your show right now between yeah. the things that we're talking about. So this show has, I'm sure it's a totally different personality from other shows that you do and from other shows that I've been on. Yeah. Because you and I are synthesizing our ways of looking at the same situation, if that makes sense. Right, for sure, yeah. That's really cool. <clears throat> um, okay, so I don't know. Do you want to uh, say anything more about the conclusions or do you have anything else that you want to bring into this conversation? There was one thing that you mentioned a minute ago that I did want to kind of go back to because you were asking if these were explicit or if we maybe teased things out through conversation. And there was a combination of both, although a lot of the, the responses people had were pretty easy. When we went, when we met with Linda Lane, uh, she she was nervous to be there. And she's one of these people who's really friendly, but she kind of laughs when she's a little bit uncomfortable. Super <laughs> nice lady. We've become good friends with her since then. We probably correspond with her more than anybody except for Mark Griffith. We really talked to him a lot. But Linda, in losing her sister-in-law in the bridge disaster, she was 18 years old when it happened. And she was at home with her family and she lost consciousness and she was in shock. She flatlined. So her brother, who lost his wife, gave her CPR and rushed her to the hospital. She flatlined a couple more times on the way to the hospital. She was in such a such a such a state of shock she was that shut down so from hearing what like from hearing the news just from from hearing the news and from losing yeah. her sister-in-law and just from all the trauma of seeing the bridge you know approaching it and then realizing it had just oh. gone down all yeah. these different things combined together and she just shut down but the reason i'm sharing this is that she was not conscious of this during our interview she didn't discuss this until it got to the point that i asked her and reframed her questions in the format of so what I'm hearing you say uh, and what I'm thinking as I'm relating to you is that I just got off work. I'm 18 years old. It's Friday night. I'm headed home. I'm going to go across the bridge. And all of a sudden, the bridge is not there. And at first, it doesn't register. And then secondly, I'm getting chills as I share this. Secondly, as I approach the bridge, I don't believe it. And then all of a sudden, it starts making sense. And I'm starting to come back to reality very slowly. That was when she said, you know, now that you said that, yeah, I died. <laughs> okay, really? Wow. But she had psychologically buried that. And it wasn't until we were able to go through this process, really to talk about this thing, to make it conscious again, and then to have that level of trust 
in the interview process because we were comfortable with each other that she was able to share that that she became conscious of it again and and right. lord only knows how long that was buried for wow so so you actually not only studied uh, the the healing that occurred afterwards but you actually facilitated it in some ways at least in maybe that so. specific case yeah maybe so i don't want to take credit for that so much because it was really a byproduct it wasn't something i was drilling for yeah. we were really trying to do research but if it was helpful to her then more power to to her well but that's the thing is like when uh, in order to deal with our past we have to deal with it right like if you if you never talk about it or never uh, never think about it then you're not processing it and it just sits there and it it effectively um putrefies i guess like it nothing good happens from from ignoring your your past trauma Absolutely. And one of the things that we referred to in the literature review was a psychological article that said almost exactly what you just said. I mean, you have you can't just think about it. You have to you have to really consciously, cognitively process it. You have to work through it. Otherwise, yeah. you don't arrive at a higher level of consciousness. Right. Right. So so what is it? I guess. Do you have any kind of sense of what what it was um, in that whole time frame? what was it that allowed these kinds of uh this this kind of healing like it i think like is there a difference uh, i don't know if if there's like a a control group that you can compare it to or whatever but like um it seems like you're 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 basically kind of your statement is your thesis statement is sort of that um throughout this process there was a silver lining and it and it has to do with all the things that played out and um, like, what, what was it that, that made that possible? We had talked a little bit about spiritual development being the last thing that we talked about. Now, mind you, Point Pleasant, West Virginia is smack dab in the middle of the Bible belt. So there's a lot of Christian population there. People congregated together, you know, they worshiped together. They counseled, they didn't really have counseling per se, but they, they were able to, to deal with it in community groups. They surrounded one another. So like for Jimmy Wedge, the guy who lost both of his mom, his mom and dad in the bridge disaster, during his interview, he shared with us that when it, when it started becoming apparent that mom and dad were on the bridge because they didn't show up to the basketball game that they were supposed to be at that he was coaching, then his friends just surrounded him. I mean, they were right there all with him. They had his back. They, they were right there with him because they wanted him to know he was not alone. So that, that in, in and of itself is huge, the community support is massive. Um, another one of the foundational articles that we worked with talked about the strength of the Appalachian people and their resilience as a matter of going through hardship. And it's it's not, I don't want to say it's an economically deprived area, but it's not the richest community, you know, or region within the United States. So they're used to tough times. But what they're also used to doing, again, is rebounding and bouncing back from things that might sink other people who just don't have that the depth of resilience within themselves. So there was that, you know, the community going through other hardships. Hey, you know what? This is horrible, but we're here. We're in this together. We're going to conquer this as well, too. So there's that spirit of overcoming also and perseverance. Right. So they had they had each other. They had a, a certain um, internal toughness and and they had their faith, I guess, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And other things they gained was being able to take a different perspective on things. I mean, nobody ever wants to see a tragedy like this happen in their community. I mean, who would want to see that? 
But as a result of that happening, there, Lyndon B. Johnson, who was the president at the time, enacted a safe bridges inspection law. So now these bridges that hadn't been thoroughly inspected really for decades, if ever, they were all getting inspected. So who knows how many lives were saved as a result of that. So that's right. a silver lining also. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, once they start uh, doing those kind of safety protocols, that's going to, um, you can guarantee that they're going to find some some issues with other bridges and shut them down right. before they before they fall apart. Right. Uh, okay. Um, all right. Uh, anything anything else in closing or? You know, I'm just really grateful for the opportunity, Ken. Thanks for having the conversation with me. Thanks for having me on again. Sorry, Jackie couldn't be here. Uh, yeah. For people who who are interested in the book, it is bridging the tragedy, silver linings in the mysterious Ohio River Valley. We're very grateful to the people of Point Pleasant who we interviewed and the people of Charleston as well for, for giving us the opportunity to do this study because without them, we couldn't have done it. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, it's it's awesome that we, you know, we can all kind of band together for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, they're, they're there to support each other and now they're there to support you in this in this fascinating study. Okay, well, thank you, Bill. Um, yeah, again, uh, give our regards to Jackie's. Uh, we're sorry that she couldn't make it, um, but uh, it was great to talk to you, and uh, we wish you all the best on your next project. Thanks, Ken. Appreciate it. Okay. Appreciate the time. Have a good evening. You too. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight on uh, Dimension Fold, and uh, hopefully you'll uh, come back and check out some more of our episodes, and you can hit subscribe there and uh, never miss the next one. And uh, have a great night.